uh, it's been an extraordinarily um, tiring and, and trying uh, endeavor, 18-hour days more often than not. Uh, and so I think um, we're all doing our part, uh, but it has been an incredible experience to just see the world kind of come together to try to tackle this in every different way. And, um, and it's a, certainly a unique experience for the world. Dr. Michael Minna is an assistant professor of epidemiology and immunology and infectious diseases at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's also associate medical director at Brigham and Women's Hospital. On this week's episode, he discusses the nature of pandemics, antibody testing, and the COVID-19 endgame in conversation with Zoya Soroy and Paloma Strelitz. This is The Dive. We bring Harvard faculty to you for conversations on the most pressing issues in the news. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're so interested to hear your perspectives on the COVID-19 pandemic. Epidemiology is on everyone's mind now in a way that it's never been before. Could you briefly describe the field of epidemiology and how it relates to pandemic outbreaks? Sure. Epidemiology is a field of public health that uh, is, uh, it's, a, it's the study of diseases in populations. And so, and not just diseases, it could be everything from studying cancer or the, the role of seatbelts in reducing uh, car accident deaths, all the way up to pandemics like we're experiencing now. And so the, the, the place where I fit in is certainly in the infectious disease epidemiology world. And uh, in that context, it's the study of how diseases transmit across and through populations. What are the risk factors associated with disease? For example, if somebody becomes infected, uh, what, what leads some people versus others to have severe infections? And, and it, so it's this very huge encompassing field with a lot of different people all kind of picking away at, at different parts of it. And as an epidemiologist, this is an unprecedented global catastrophe. As of today, there are over 2 million confirmed global cases. What's it been like dealing with this in real time? It's been extraordinary on, on, uh, on an extraordinary number of fronts, really. Um, uh, we began working on this uh, just after it started to emerge in China. The, the group that I'm part of, which is the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics, which is housed in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, we've really been focused on, on just trying to, initially trying to understand how quickly is this virus moving? How likely is it that it's going to uh, move across the world? Of course, now we know that it, that it did indeed do that. And it's been just a, an amazing amount of sort of energy and the, the silver lining, I think, that, that is coming from this epidemic is that the, the research community, in particular the epidemiological research community, I don't think has ever felt so connected. Uh, and it's brought researchers from all around the world together in a way that's truly unprecedented. And, um, and it's certainly on a more personal level, I think, for a lot of us who are epidemiologists that focus on epidemics like this, uh, it's been an extraordinarily um, tiring and, and trying uh, endeavor as well. 18-hour um, days more often than not. Uh, and so I think um, we're all doing our part, uh, but it has been an incredible experience to just see 
the world to kind of come together to try to tackle this in every different way. And, um, and it's a, certainly a unique experience for the world. Zooming out, can you break down the life cycle stages of a pandemic for us and kind of indicate where we are in that process right now? Sure. So th this pandemic, we can use concrete terms and we'll focus on this one. Uh, it started in this market in Wuhan, which some people, most people probably heard something about. And, and it, the, the pandemic, a pandemic like this is often started as a zoonotic event. And that means a, a, a transmission from an animal to a human. And so then all of a sudden you have a new virus that comes from an animal, in this case, probably a bat in some way, into humans. And then you have a whole population of humans across the whole globe that have never ex been exposed to this pathogen. And that's when you have sort of uh, the potential for a big pandemic like this. And within a few weeks, it started transmitting actually all over China. Cases were detected uh, throughout many of the provinces in China pretty quickly. And it was, and so that was sort of the whole beginning phase. The second phase of it was really when, when cases started being seen in other countries meaning it was infecting so many people that even the, the one-off traveler that might be going to another country was potentially bringing it uh, abroad. And so it was seen, for example, in Singapore, somebody in South Korea ended up getting infected and was part of a, a religious group that, that had sort of a group of thousands of members would meet and it was a super spreading event. And then it becomes very, very difficult to contain. So that was sort of the stage two of this pandemic and, and from there, it just sort of started its long march across the globe. And that's really where we are now. Well, I should say there's a new stage that we're entering into. Uh, and I'm kind of I'm making these phases up. There's not clearly defined phases, but these are how I view it. And then phase four is really what we're going into now, where the, the social distancing efforts with regard to this pandemic uh, have been put in place. And these are kind of the mitigating strategies that countries are, are mostly adopting now which is to just slow the spread. Even in the absence of any testing, one thing that you can do to know that you can help slow spread is just to get people to stop transmitting to each other. And that unfortunately means that we have to get people to stop um, interacting physically with each other. And that, that was, in this case, it was closing down shops and markets and schools and businesses and kind of putting the world on standstill. And, uh, and that's really where we are now. We're in this fourth phase where the, the transmission has slowed and we're going to keep pushing it down and down and down to a point where we feel that things are finally getting back under control. And then we can start going into the next phase, which is going to be figuring out how to open things back up. And so from your perspective, how early on were there warning signs that this was going to become a global pandemic? I think, um, I think the warning signs were there really early, probably December, you know, the moment that this virus started spreading so widely, um, even just within Wuhan, within the city it, it came from, uh, I think that there was, that's a pretty good sign that it's going to spread. Certainly the moment it started to spread widely across all of China and start being detected, that um, viruses like this don't exactly pay attention to borders. So. I would say that in the middle of December and early January, it was very apparent to most people who study infectious disease epidemiology that this was very likely going to be an epidemic that would not be stopped uh, and would become a pandemic. There was always a glimmer of hope, I think, because SARS, which is a very similar virus to this, 
did kind of burn itself out. And it had a slightly different biology to it, though, that probably helped it to, to burn out. And unfortunately, or I should say, fortunately, we got lucky with SARS and MERS as well, which is another virus that's very similar. And this one, this was just the one that we didn't get lucky with. Right, yeah. Because it feels like a lot of commentators are saying the outbreak of a pandemic disease posed a predictable and catastrophic threat to the human race. Do you think a pandemic like this is predictable? I certainly think it's predictable. I would say that we don't necessarily, we can't predict what exact virus it's going to be, and we can't predict um, when exactly it's going to happen. But that it is going to happen is certainly predictable. We, we know from history that these types of pandemics do occur. 1918 is obviously maybe the most famous one. 2009 H1N1 was, uh, you know, it turned out not to be the, the worst virus, but had it been a more devastating virus for an individual to become infected with, it would have also been a, a very scary and terrible pandemic. Zika virus. So we know that these things are going to continue and the more global travel that we have overall, uh, we're going, we can anticipate that these viruses will, will be less and less contained to the place where they emerge. So I, I think that moving forward, if there's anything that we can learn from this epidemic and this pandemic is that, uh, that these will continue happening to the human race, to the world, and you know, it behooves us to essentially develop protocols that are truly global and how we're going to handle them. A key component to getting America back up and running is widespread antibody testing. The blood test may be able to find out if someone who had COVID-19 is now immune, but there are concerns over the testability to accurately determine immunity and how long that immunity lasts. As you said, we are currently at a standstill and the next phase is figuring out how to open up. Antibody testing is receiving a lot of hype in this conversation. What is antibody testing briefly? What does it show and does it guarantee that someone is immune to coronavirus? We can, we can take a, a small bit of somebody's blood, a drop even, and we can put that into what we call an ELISA test. And, uh, but there's lots of other different types of tests, but essentially an antibody detection system. And we can ask, does this person actually have an antibody that specifically recognizes the, in this case, this novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. And, and the, there's a lot of hype around these tests because uh, in many ways it's warranted. Uh, the antibody tests, because we have a memory of them, they last. So if somebody, if somebody was infected last month or, or two months ago, we can test them today and we can, we can know that they have had an infection in the past. Um, and so the reason that's important is we can, we don't have to detect somebody's infection status during the time that they have virus in them, which is oftentimes a very short window. So if you uh, develop an infection with this virus and I only test you two weeks from now, I might, you might have a negative result on the virus test. But the antibodies right. and won't you're lie. saying that the antibody test is a simply performed test that for sure tells you if you've had the virus. 
But when it comes to immunity, we think of it in very simple terms. You get infected by the virus, your body builds up antibodies to fight it, and then you're immune. But that is not the case in coronavirus. It's a bit more complicated. Can you tell us how immunity works in this case? Sure. So the antibodies that we're detecting can lead to good neutralizing immunity, meaning that if you get infected with the virus again, and you have these antibodies, they can glom onto that virus and immediately neutralize it. Uh, but what we don't know about this particular virus is just how good those neutralizing antibodies will be. Like measles, for example, if somebody gets a measles virus and has antibodies against it, we have a pretty good idea that they will not get infected again, even if they come in contact with the virus. But different viruses lead to different types of immune responses. And we just don't know enough yet about this particular coronavirus to know, will it lead to a truly neutralizing response in most people? Or will most people still have some, uh, some susceptibility, even if they've been infected uh, last month, maybe they can get infected more mildly again. We're not sure. And we don't know how long that duration might be. Is it two months that they're protected or two years? So you're saying that even if we can see that there's antibodies, we don't know if those antibodies are strong enough to fight off entirely the virus again and how long they're going to last in the system. So you, they might, you might be able, able to fight it off for two months, but after two months, you can get the virus again. That's correct. And there's even one other feature that's, that adds even more complication. We actually can't, we don't know enough yet to know if having antibodies means that somebody can or cannot go on to continue transmitting the virus if they get re-exposed. Right. So what we know now of antibodies is that you've had the virus, but we don't know if you can get the virus again. How long can you keep the virus off and if you can transmit it to somebody else? So essentially not much. <laughs> but, we, but we do think that we know enough. We, we don't believe that this is going to be some super crazy virus, unlike anything we've ever seen. Right. It's behaving much like a, like a coronavirus. It's behaving like an acute respiratory virus. And we do know that for most viruses that we know of as humans that infect us, that after somebody has their first exposure, they develop an immune response similar to the ones we've been measuring. And that immune response usually leads to some level of protection. There's been a much more nuanced conversation about this virus because the implications towards opening the economy are so great. And do you know how long we have to wait until we know for sure how immunity works in this case? Well, so we're setting up the studies now to, to address this question, um, but we, it's a little difficult. We can't accelerate these studies so we essentially have to wait for somebody to recover from infection, and then we have to monitor them. We have to measure their antibodies and maybe monitor them for months. And so it can sometimes take months to, it will likely take months to really get the answer to this question well, but there are ways that we can accelerate the process a little bit, and that's that we can, um, we can really address this question in healthcare workers, for example, people who are at high risk of exposure so that we can try to sort of use people who will likely be coming in contact more frequently. That, and that can help us sort of speed things up a bit. So health, healthcare workers in this case are doing 
more than the immense job that is at their hand, but they're also helping us kind of figure out how this virus is behaving. That's correct. And we've seen an enormous, um, enormously positive response from healthcare workers as we, whether these are doctors and residents or nurses, you know, other folks who work in the hospital too. Um, we've just seen an outpouring of support and people being willing to take place, to take part in these studies where, where essentially they're, they're just allowing um, the researchers to swab their nose or take a small blood sample every, every so often in order to monitor them. Uh, and it's, it's good public health too that we monitor them on a frequent basis, but that they're so willing to, to be participants in this study has been um, very nice to see. So when we're discussing policy issues like having a, a certificate that tells you if you've been infected before and sort of that being proof that you can go back to work, we're really jumping the gun, right? I think so. I think that we should really be, uh, we can be planning, but we should also plan for situations where it turns out that immunity is not neutralizing or sterilizing. And, uh, and so we, we should be planning all different contingencies. But at the moment, I think that it is jumping the gun quite a bit to, to just make an assumption that if somebody has antibodies that they can't be continuing to transmit the virus. And what about countries that have decided that the worst is over, they've peaked, the infection rate is going down, so things can open up a bit, like, say, Austria and Spain. Do you think these countries are at risk of reinfecting sort of a second wave infection? Absolutely. And that is something that needs to be monitored very closely as any, as any of our countries and societies start opening up again. Uh, that, that is a huge risk and it's something that everyone's looking at. Uh, for example, China is certainly starting to open up and, and they're allowing people to sort of leave their, um, their in-home quarantines. And, um, and the world is sort of watching uh, to see what happens. Will they have a second wave or not? Because once these countries are opened up, they are relying on herd immunity um, in order to prevent this second wave of infection from happening. But herd immunity needs 60 to 80% of the population to, to have the infection or have had the infection. And in this case, the numbers are believed to be far lower, right? Uh, that's correct. Um, we believe, you know, a lot, of, a lot of researchers and epidemiologists think that this has only hit 2% of the people. Uh, my personal um, feeling from being, in particular, from being so embedded in the testing world for this, I don't, I think that actually there's a much larger fraction who's probably been infected, but still, I wouldn't put it at more than 15% or about 45 million people in the United States. So that would be a much larger fraction than we currently know about through the testing we've done. Uh, and even that, if it was sort of at that extreme, which that might be a little high, but if it was at that extreme, that's still not sufficient to really protect our most vulnerable populations through herd immunity. So uh, there's going to have to be serious efforts to improve our capacity to do public health surveillance uh, really before we can start opening things up in a, in a very safe way. And what does that public health surveillance entail? Well, a lot of it will be um, improved testing capacity and then doing contact tracing to make sure that every person who might be infected 
that we go and quarantine the people who they may have also infected. Um, and then it will also entail um, sort of uh, bridging that with serology with these antibody tests to know who is immune. So it will be a lot of monitoring the populations to know sort of what's, what's happening in real time. And, and we're trying to devise methods to do that. Would you suggest opening up right now, or are you in favor of any measures that are easing uh, lockdown at the moment? Not, no, I am not. I, I think that we should um, probably remain in the in the state that we're in, probably at least until mid-May. Uh, and I think that by mid-May we'll see much, much lower um, transmission rate of this virus um, because of these lockdowns or these social um, social distancing. And then I think before we actually start opening things up, we have to do it in a really, really careful way. We have to um, figure out which populations are most essential to getting back to work very quickly. And maybe those will be people we will um, try to get back to work as fast as possible. We need to work uh, with what populations are at least risk for, for being hubs of infection that, go, that spread to many other people. So for example, restaurants um, might be a place where people, uh, where lots of people from all different um, air arenas of life all come together. And so if you have all these people coming into a restaurant, and there's an infection there, they can all then go and spread it out. So that might be one of the later places that we really want to open up versus say um, a factory floor where there's, where people are mostly like, you, you might anticipate that people who work on the floor of a factory maybe will go in. A, they're more essential perhaps to sort of the gears being turned to keep our society going. Um, you know, maybe they, they go in and if something does spread, they, they might not be the most connected of individuals in terms of sort of their, their workplace probably doesn't have a lot of sort of outsiders coming in very frequently and then bringing it. So it'd be a very contained place if, the, if an outbreak did happen. Right. So if you would say that those allowed to go to work should be those who essentially don't have contact with a lot of people. So even in case a second wave occurs, it's not going to be a super strong one and we will be able to manage it in case that happens. Right. That's right. I think that those are just some examples, but I think those are the types of things we have to be thinking about. Um, as well as our, can we use the demographics? There's very unique aspects of this virus where we have seen that children, for example, do not seem to get severe infections. So maybe we can start allowing children to go back to school and that might give their parents more opportunity, even if they're not going back to work, but to actually be efficient at working from home. So until a vaccine is out, we can expect that life is not going to go back to normal as we knew it. Uh, I think to a certain extent until a vaccine, but that might not happen. You know, we don't actually know if a vaccine will necessarily come out in a year. We hope it will, but sometimes biology doesn't play well with what we want. Um, uh, but I think what would probably be more likely to really change things is having a good therapeutic. If we can say to somebody, look, we're opening up the economy again, and uh, we know that, there, that outbreaks might occur, but we can give you this medicine and, and it will really cut your risk of having a severe infection if you become infected. Maybe we can get the, the um, individual level risk to a place that is at least acceptable um, in, light of the, the, uh, in light of sort of what we have to balance it against, which is sort of we, we don't want um, 
social distancing and the economy to continue being shut down for so long that we send ourselves into a Great Depression that ends up harming more people than even this virus would have. In the White House Rose Garden, in the midst of a pandemic that's killed tens of thousands, the moment Donald Trump decides is right to cut off the millions America sends to the World Health Organization. Today, I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. The World Health Organization has been in the headlines this week and Trump has just announced that the United States will be freezing its funding. What is their role in this pandemic and what authority do they actually have? The World Health Organization acts as essentially an expert body uh, to provide guidance to, um, to countries. And, uh, you know, the United States has a lot of expertise. And so I would say that the U.S. in general doesn't lean on the World Health Organization so much for, for guidance and policy decisions, but much of the world does. And, and that's because a lot of the world really um, needs that, that level of expertise that doesn't necessarily exist in their own countries. And so uh, and the, the WHO also acts as a body that is able to bring public health leaders and, and state leaders together from around, around the world to tackle big problems like this. Um, you know, this is not uh, the type of problem that the White House should necessarily be um, expected to lead uh, every country on, but it is the kind of problem that the World Health Organization should have the leverage uh, and voice in order to bring people around the a common table to say, how can we as a globe work with our leaders in countries and advise everyone in, in sort of some sort of unified way? And I think that, the, that we're, right now the World Health Organization is needed maybe more than at almost any other time in history. Uh, so it does depress me a bit to, to hear that the White House is freezing funds to the WHO. Uh, given their extraordinary importance in tackling this epidemic, even if we don't see it here at home in the United States, I think it's obviously uh, extraordinarily important as a body and an organization to help many, many countries across the globe figure out how to tackle this virus. Do you think that any of the criticisms that have been leveled against the WHO from Trump, but also from I know other government figures, some in academia uh, and people from non governmental organizations. Do you think any of those are justified? Well, I think some of them, I haven't heard all of the criticisms. I think some of them were that the WHO didn't act soon enough and wasn't agile and quick enough to act. Uh, I personally think that they should have acted quicker and been more um, outspoken about the dangers of this virus earlier. Uh, they, of course, have to balance what the impacts are of everything that they say. So if they had called this a pandemic, and then it turned out not being a pandemic, then you know, they're kind of in a, in a tough spot where they're, if they act too quickly and then, and then something doesn't materialize, they, are, they, they say that they're fear-mongering or, or you know, un unreliable. If they act too slow, then they get um, blamed for acting too slow. Um, I think the evidence was there in a way that probably could have supported quick, more swift action. Um, in that, but, I, but I think in general that they're trying to work um, 
in a very tough situation in a very tough time and and I give them a lot of credit for for how they're responding given that pandemics gen are generally considered a serious but infrequent occurrence what do you think the international community could do uh, to be better prepared in the future i think one is we really need to have true global surveillance for infectious diseases so for example some colleagues of mine at princeton and myself we have proposed this idea of a global immunological observatory where essentially we monitor blood supplies from around the world these might be blood blood donors or hospital blood banks and uh, and there's a monitoring system set up in a way that's very similar to the weather system where where people i could envision a world where maybe you or i or anyone could log in and type in a country or a town in the world and say you know what's the prevalence of this virus today or that other one and try to use that sort of surveillance system as a way to detect for early detection of new outbreaks. Uh, so that's one thing I think we can do. The other is that the economy is a huge part of this pandemic and what's happening, and it's a big part of our life. And I think that we need to have, uh, I'll make another analogy with the weather system. We have these massive models that are sort of ready to go and always working and honed in for how to predict the weather. And I think in this case, we really should use, we should have big global models to understand how um, shutting down an economy, for example, in response to a new epidemic might impact uh, people's livelihoods, you know, two years from now, for example. And, and to, to really have a much more robust system to allow policymakers to make the right decisions for, for, their, for their regions. And I, I think that a lot of that is sort of, that would have to require whole new branches of science to develop, but I think we should be pushing for that type of activity. And lastly, can you share with us the most positive example of collaboration within the public health community that you've read about or experienced since this pandemic outbreak? I would say the most positive that I've experienced has been um, right after the outbreak got going, uh, a, a large, a company, a corporation from China called Evergrande uh, got in touch with um, some of the leaders at Harvard and in the Boston community in general and said, we need to figure out how to tackle this virus. It started in China. We want to be supportive of the efforts. And, and so sometimes money speaks, but money can oftentimes form collaborative efforts. And they donated $115 million to the Boston community. But the nice thing is it wasn't to any one university it was really to bring the whole boston biotechnology community whether that's academia or industry whether it's harvard mit bu tufts all these different universities and and startups and industry partners have all come around because of it started because of this large donation but it's really continued to persist uh, because it, this this epidemic has brought people from all walks of life in the biomedical world together to start talking about how to tackle it. And me personally, I've made an enormous new network of collaborators and friends through this process to, to really accelerate the science that we do. And I think everyone in the Boston community who's tackling this problem has probably experienced something similar where we're finally seeing, uh, I would say that Boston, for example, isn't usually considered to be the, the most um, collaborative of, of cities when it comes to, you know, usually you have different camps, you have the Harvards and the MITs and even within each of those various big silos. Um, 
but we've seen a lot of those walls come down as a result of this and and it's been pretty heartening to see just how how many people are working together and it's i think that it will persist long after this virus has been tackled that's great to hear michael we really appreciate hearing you um and your insight into the challenges that we're collectively facing thank you so much for joining us happy to be here absolutely Thanks for joining us on The Dive. This episode was produced by Paloma Strelitz, Zoya Soroy, and Judd Olenoff. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share it on social media. And we welcome feedback and guest ideas. Write to us at ideas at thedive.media.